Today's reading is from 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. <coughs> do not be frightened, but in your heart revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that you, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in body, but made alive in spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. For those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. Now that saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of clear conscience toward God. It saves you by resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, worship team, for songs that directed us to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Never can go wrong there. Well, good morning, church. And you're wondering, spirits and prison and Noah and baptism and all of that, guess what? We're not even getting to those verses this morning. So, you're going to have to come next week to see what I do with that section where I could only tackle uh, 13 through 17 uh, this morning. You know, um, Charlie Brown, and, and you do know if Charles Schultz, creator of Peanuts, was never born, I'd lose half my illustrations. You do know that, right? Well, Charlie Brown, he's being pressured by Linus to spread the good news about the great pumpkin. And Linus says to him, Charlie Brown, people need to know about this great pumpkin. And Charlie Brown replies, but, but, I'm, but I'm not good at this kind of thing. And Linus shoots back, but Charlie Brown, people need to know about the great pumpkin. You'll be doing them a real service. Linus then gives these instructions to the very hesitant Charlie Brown. He says, I'm going to take that side of the street and knock on the doors and tell them about the great pumpkin. And you're going to take this side of the street, knock on the doors, and tell them about the great pumpkin. And Charlie Brown walks away mumbling. It's so embarrassing. But he follows what Linus asks him to do, and you then see Charlie Brown... He goes up to his first door, he rings the doorbell, and he says, good morning, I'm here to tell you about the great pumpkin. On Halloween night, the great pumpkin rises out of the pumpkin patch and brings toys to all the children in the world. Charlie Brown then stands there with a big smile on his face. He says, I did it. And then you see Charlie Brown walking away saying, but I'm sure glad no one answered the door. <laughs> I'm sure glad no one answered the door. You know, I likely have shared with you before my introduction to evangelism. I was in my early 20s, I was married, I was living in rural western New York, 
And the church we were attending there, there was this one guy who was super passionate about going out cold calling every Monday morning. And he'd, he'd walk through some neighborhood, he'd, he'd knock on some doors in the hopes of sharing the gospel with the person who dared to come and answer the door. And he was always looking for someone to join him. And I'll be honest, on Sundays when he did his recruiting, I tried to avoid him. He'd find me out though, and after giving some pretty lame excuses week after week as to why I wasn't available to go out on Mondays, he finally guilted me into it. And I, I, I agreed to go, and off I went on Monday morning, knocking on the doors of strangers. Now, since confession is good for the soul, I confess to you that uh, as we knocked on the doors, I was secretly hoping that no one answered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's your pastor saying that. Now, my lack of courage aside, I do wonder, is that an effective way to reach the unbelieving community? And as we've been working our way through uh, Peter's first letter, it's been clear as to our greatest impact on our culture for Jesus Christ. And Peter's been answering the question, how are we to live in a society that is hostile to our faith? And the short answer is, make our evangelism believable by how we live. And so as we zero in on this passage in Peter that was just read, the emphasis continues to be on our lifestyle. And so if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as I said, uh, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 and not the end of this. We'll pick it up next week. But here we are continuing in our series, Living on Hope. Now, I want to draw your attention to what I see is the key verse in the section we're looking at this morning. It is verse 15. Verse 15. Now, follow along. In 1 Peter 3, 15, we find these words. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, one of the first Bible courses that I, I ever took was in the realm of Christian apologetics, which simply means giving a defense of the Christian faith. And it's taken from this verse. Because that word answer, that, as the NIV translates, it is the word apologia, which means to defend the truth behind an idea. So an apologist or, or study in apologetics looks to provide a well-reasoned defense of the Christian faith in response to the many objections to Christianity. And over the years, there have been some brilliant uh, apologists who can take on atheists and unbelieving skeptics to explain the existence of God or the, or the problem with evolution or, or the apparent, apparent discrepancies in the Bible. But honestly, how many in this room feel qualified to defend the faith on these and other objections? I mean, giving a, a, a tight reason defense to objections of Christianity might seem as intimidating as knocking on strangers' doors to tell them about Jesus. We'd just rather kind of leave that to the qualified few. But what if I told you that every follower of Jesus Christ is called to be an apologist? Every follower of Jesus Christ is called to be apologist that, that, that is on each of us to defend our faith. And then, and then what do I mean by that? Well, our greatest witness 
Our greatest witness is not having the right answers to others' questions, but having the right lifestyle to raise the right questions. Let me say that again. This is the bottom line for this morning, if you care to know. Our greatest witness is not having the right answers to others' questions, but having the right lifestyle to raise the right questions. And every one of us in this room can make a case for hope. All right, well, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. We're going to answer that four ways. First of all, how do we make a case for hope? By how we respond to suffering. By how we respond to suffering. All right, look at me at uh, verse 13, chapter 3. Notice Peter here begins this section with a question, a rhetorical question, kind of meant to encourage these believers to continue to do what is right. And he asks them, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And eager to do good, by the way, literally means uh, zealots for goodness. So are you, are you, are you zealous for good? Are you, are you passionate? Are you eager to step in and do good when the opportunity presents itself? And Peter is saying here, it's quite unusual for most people to mistreat those who are zealous for good. It's hard to harm the one whose life is marked by generosity and kindness and unselfishness and, and trying to do good. In most cases, people won't give you a hard time for doing good. Now, that's the general rule, the general expectation. Well, 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 Peter doesn't leave it there. Notice he says, uh, he goes on to say verse 14, but even if, contrary to what's expected, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now church, hear that. You're blessed. When you do what is right, and you re- receive unfair treatment for doing what is right. You're in the center of God's will. He speaks well of you. So rather than ask when you're in that, God, God, why are you doing this to me? Or, or why, is God, why, God, are you allowing this? Or, or God, where are you in my suffering? We can consider this unfair treatment as being part of God's plan to strengthen us, to grow us. How are you responding to suffering? How am I responding to suffering? Now, society as a whole doesn't respond well to suffering. And I believe the main reason for that is our default setting in the society is happiness. Happiness. We're told, and we start to believe, that we are to be perpetually happy, deliriously happy. All the time, that's our goal in life, be happy. And so when something bad happens to us, we act shocked that it happened. Listen, we live in a fallen, broken world. People will disappoint us. This world we live in can be downright maddening at times. We've been lied to that we should be happy. Now even... Even secular writers are starting to question this as they've been writing uh, books. Um, haven't read either of the two I'm going to mention, but the title is quite interesting. One title from a secular writer now, he writes, The Happiness Trap. And it is a trap. The other book title is Amusing Ourselves to Death. We are amusing ourselves to death. And these books and others like it are starting to point out how harmful it is to believe the lie that we're to be happy all the time. Now, earlier in the series, I mentioned 
that we do our children a disservice when we protect them, when we rescue them, when we bail them out of everything that is uncomfortable in their life. Oh, you don't have to go through that. I want you to be happy. Now, I've yet to read it, but I'm intrigued by the title, The Coddling of the American Mind. Now, my older two kids' generation was all about coddling them, right? Everyone wins. Don't keep score. Don't let them experience failure. You're the best. You're the prettiest. You're the smartest. Let's coddle them. So what's absent today is fortitude. The ability to persevere through adversity and pain with strength and courage. It's missing today. So instead of working through pain, people look for some escape, right? And so they, they start to dull their pain. Maybe you do this as well. It dull their pain with your drug of choice. It might be uh, some substance. It might be binge eating. It might be extra hours at work. It might be online chatting. It might be buying stuff you don't really need. It might be losing yourself in some fantasy, all of which only provide some temporary relief. But listen, only Christianity deals with suffering honestly. Only Christianity deals with suffering honestly. It doesn't, Christianity, the Bible doesn't pretend, deny the existence of pain. No, the Bible is real about it. Because when you live on the hope that God is at work in your mess, you're able to bear up under the pressures and stresses and disappointments of life. See, your response to suffering, especially in the midst of injustice and unfairness, gives credibility to what you say you believe. It makes a case for hope. All right, that's the first thing. The second way we make a case for hope is by refraining from fear. Refraining from fear. Uh, look at the rest of verse 14. He quotes Isaiah 8, 12. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, which the thought behind do not be frightened is the idea of emotional turmoil, kind of be shaken up, disturbed, very troubled. So Peter is basically saying, refrain from fear. And in my mind's eye, I can only wonder that as Peter is writing these words, do not fear, he has this, has this flashback to a painful time in his life, a, a flashback to the scene in the courtyard during Jesus' trial. Remember? The servant girl asked Peter, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. And, and fear, Peter replied, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and, and she pressed again. She said, surely, you know, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. And fearful Peter replied, I don't know this man Jesus you're talking about. Peter crumbled under fear. And he can certainly identify with the fear that goes with us every single day as we live our days as followers of Christ. Peter failed in the very thing he's asking these believers to do. But this is exactly what a restored person looks like right here. Jesus said that Peter would fall, but that he would turn back and strengthen his, his brothers. Remember, failure doesn't qualify you from God's work. A failure isn't the end of anyone's story. It's the very thing God can use in your life to speak into the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ and others in the world. And that's what Peter's now being used by God. He can say, do not fear. He's restored. We do not fear, but he can appreciate it because we all have fears. 
Like the, like the five-year-old, he was in the kitchen while mom is making dinner, and mom asked him to go into the basement and get her a can of tomato soup. But he didn't want to go in that basement alone. It's dark down there, he said, and I'm scared. And she asked again, and he persisted. And finally she said, it's okay, Jesus will be in there with you. So a five-year-old boy, he walks hesitantly to the door. He, he slowly opens it. He peeks inside, sees that it's dark, reaches in and says, Jesus, if you're in there, would you hand me that can of tomato soup? <laughs> right? Don't we wish it was like that? Doubtful. It would be. But the truth is, he meets us in our fears. He will, he will be with us. He might not hand you that can of soup. We all know fear. We all know fear. We're very familiar with it. Fear has become a staple of today's culture. Mainstream news media seems to run on it. So much of, of what's out there incites, produces fear. And there are many things today that can cause us to fear, right? Will, will, will the economy turn around? Will I have to choose this winter between heating my home and feeding my family? There's, there's fear of violence and, the, and there's fear of, of our freedoms being taken away. I mean, I mean these, these are real. But church, we must put fear in its proper place. For when we do, it will drive out that worry. It will drive out that anxiety. It will drive out despair. And what we do with this fear will mark the difference between making a case for hope and missing a missed opportunity because we fear just like the world fears. In the movie, and I haven't seen it, but I read about a panic room. Jodie Foster plays a woman who's frightened by burglars who have broken into a New York City condo. She retreats with her daughter to a high-tech panic room that's actually a part of her residence. Now, according to ABC News, panic rooms are not just in the movies. Security companies regularly install what they refer to as safe rooms, which is the same thing as panic rooms. Most requests come from wealthy families or celebrities who fear being targets of kidnapping, stalking, or home invasion. It's estimated there are thousands of such safe rooms in Bel Air and Hobie Hills in South Car Southern California alone. Safe rooms, these panic rooms, can be as simple as oversized closets with reinforced doors, a phone, and even a fridge. They can also be extravagant secret rooms with video banks, computers, and all systems that protect against biological warfare. Now, what a way to live. Now, I understand safety is a natural human desire. Yes, yes. We don't, we don't want to be harmed. That is normal. And having safety measures in place is one thing, but living in fear, paralyzed by fear, is another matter completely. We don't have to fear in the same way people of this world fear. Because God is our protection. He is our safety room. He is our panic room. Put fear in its proper place. Are we fearing what others fear? Do we act just like the world in this? And if so, why are we? 
When we don't respond to fear as the world does, and they will see something different. What will they see? Well, that's where Peter goes next. If we're to make a case for hope, then we're to replace that fear, thirdly, by acknowledging Jesus as Lord over every situation. Over every situation. That's the third way we make a case for hope. Acknowledging Jesus as Lord over every situation. All right, pick it up in verse 15. I read it earlier, but let me read it again. Verse 15, follow along. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, when it says give an answer or give a defense, it is using courtroom terminology. It's the idea of of putting on a stand, being put on a stand, and then reply to the formal legal charges uh, against you. And so Peter's telling his readers, be prepared to give a reply to accusations leveled against them. But Peter broadens it, I believe, to include all believers, where he says, always be prepared to give an answer. It's not just speaking of this formal defense given in a court of law, but that there's to be a readiness on our part always. See, this verse is not saying, as many have said it, it does say, This verse is not saying that you must get all studied up on how to answer that difficult question and objection to Christianity before you can open your mouth. You don't need some master's degree in Bible or apologetics. That's not what this is saying. The response we're to give is not some theological dissertation. Listen, the world really doesn't care how much you know. Nor are they very impressed with the crossing of all our theological T's and dotting of all our theological I's. And I say, oh boy, can you please tell me about five-point Calvinism? I can't wait to hear. No, they don't care. Now, I'm not saying that knowing your stuff isn't important. I'm not saying that. It isn't suggested at all that we should be sloppy in our theology. You know me better than that. Not saying that. I'm simply saying that isn't what's on the minds of the people in our community out there, the ones you rub shoulders with every single day. Because our greatest witness, church, our greatest witness is not having the right answers to others' questions, having the right lifestyle to raise the right questions. They see your response is so counterintuitive that someone may ask you a question. What may they ask you about? Well, notice it doesn't say they're going to ask us about our faith or they're going to ask us about what we believe. I mean, we want to get there. But what is it there we'll ask about? What is it? Our hope. Our hope. They see hope. They can see that our hope isn't in what they're hoping in. Comfort and approval and wealth, that promotion, that right human leader. And so they ask. I'll be honest. People have passed me by sometimes. They're not seeing hope in me. Walking around hopeless. Okay, what is hope? All right, it's on your screen. Hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he says he'll do. Hope is that inner peacefulness that God is in control of all events. Hope is that joyful conviction that our life is in God's capable hands, and not only is our present governed by our all-caring God, that the best is yet to come. That's hope, not wishful thinking. Hope, biblical confidence, conviction, certainty. 
And when your demeanor and my demeanor is counterintuitive, someone may wonder how in the world you can suffer for doing good. They may wonder how in the world in these scary times that you're not rattled. Can you, can you tell me about this? What's with you? Now it raises the question, does it not? Are people asking? Are people asking? And if not, why not? If people aren't asking you for, to give the reason for the hope, it just might be because they're not seeing hope in you and in me. The best way to make a case for our hope be hopeful. Biblical hope. It's then that someone might ask us to give a reason for that hope. Now, no, it doesn't say how often it will happen, but that we're to be ready, be prepared for when it does. See, our concern must be on being prepared. How are we prepared? Beginning of the verse. By setting Christ apart as Lord. Daily. Hourly. Get up in the morning, you go, I'm setting apart Christ. I'm giving Christ his rightful place in my life today. I'm honoring him as Lord, master, ruler, in charge, in the driver's seat. Not co-pilot, but flying the plane. He's the one who, he's going to call the shots. He's the one who's going to trump my, my human agenda. He, he's, gonna, he's the one who's going to have the first say, the final say. He's the one who's going to be the authority of my life. And when Jesus says that, and when Jesus is set apart as Lord each day, it will change you. Try it. I need to try it more often. Is he Lord of your heart? Is he Lord of your decisions? Is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your marriage? Is he Lord Sunday through Saturday? You see, most don't want to dump Christ completely, just kind of keep him in a comfortable distance. Remember Wilbur Reese quote years ago? He spoke of only wanting $3 worth of God. He says, I'd like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You see, $3 worth of God won't make us very nervous or uncomfortable during the week. $3 worth of God won't ask too much of me, but he's there. $3 worth of Christ will, will keep our guilt level just below the threshold of pain. $3 worth of Christ, it won't demand as much from me. But you know what else? It won't make a case for our hope. Set apart Christ as Lord means living a life of hope based upon the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone gives us a rock-solid basis for hope, especially in the midst of suffering. Will you pray that someone asks you what you're hoping in? And then speak into that? And it matters how we respond to those who ask. Notice it here, at the end of, of, of verse 15 here, we're told how to respond to them. How? Pounding them over the head, pinning them in the corner, shoving it down their throat? No, gentleness and respect. Author Kevin Harney tells this following story, and he says, it was a battle, a wrestling match, a test of wills. Every day, at exactly the same time, 
Margaret, my wife, would go to the bathroom cabinet, open it up, and take out a huge bottle of castor oil. Then she would head to the kitchen to get a tablespoon. And at the sound of the drawer opening and the silverware rattling, Patches, her Yorkshire Terrier, would run and hide, sometimes under the bed, at other times in the bathtub, or even behind Margaret's recliner. Patches knew what was coming. Someone along the way had convinced Margaret that her beloved dog would have strong teeth, a beautiful coat, and a long life if she just gave him a spoonful of castor oil every single day. So as an act of love, every 24 hours, she cornered Patches, pinned him down, pried open his mouth, and as he whimpered, squirmed, and fought her with all his strength, she would pour a tablespoon of castor oil down his little doggy throat. Neither Patches nor Margaret enjoyed their daily wrestling match. Then one day in the middle of their battle, with one sideways kick, Patches sent the dreaded bottle of castor oil flying across the kitchen floor and it spilled all over the place. It was a momentary victory for the canine as Margaret let him go and had to go run to the pantry and grab a towel to come back and clean up the mess. And when she came back, she was utterly shocked. There was Patches licking up the spilled castor oil with a look of satisfaction only a dog can make. <laughs> and Margaret began to laugh uncontrollably. In one moment, it all made sense. Patches liked castor oil. He just hated being pinned down and having it poured down his throat. Listen, people don't appreciate it when we try to shove the gospel down their throat. They don't like it. You wouldn't. And we might find that gentleness and respect will go a long way. Maybe they'll, I don't mind this, now that you put it that way. Can't be pouncing on people, pinning them against the wall, and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Reminds me of the story of a barber he was a Christian, and he had kind of an interesting method of evangelizing the customers as they come in the chair. And he didn't really think about this, but the customer would come and sit down in the chair, and the barber, with sharp scissors in his hand, would ask, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? <laughs> Good intentions, just a terrible method. See, let others be amazed at not only how we respond to suffering, let them be amazed by how we respond to them with gentleness and respect. Making a case for hope. All right, lastly here, we make a case for hope by living a life of consistent integrity. Consistent integrity, I'm just going to touch on these two verses. Like I said, I'll pick up the other verses hopefully uh, next week. But verse 16, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now this thought of keeping a clear or good conscience, I believe, connects to what Peter just said at the end of verse 15 of our response to those who ask us. We respond to them with gentleness, with respect, and with a clear conscience. In other words, Living a life of consistent integrity is a quiet defense of the hope we have in Christ. Making a case for hope is continuing to do good even when others persist in doing us harm. We have to stick it out for the long haul. 
Now how do we do that? How do we maintain this clear conscience for the unbelieving world as they're watching us and they, they're putting us under scrutiny as they constantly maybe badger us? How do we, how do we maintain a clear conscience with all of that or, or when we're getting beat up by the world? Well, we must keep the end in view. We must keep the end in view. Good suffering now is better than a bad ending. Good suffering now is better than a bad ending. And Peter draws a contrast, I believe, between good suffering and bad suffering. He speaks of those who will be ashamed of their slander. When will they be ashamed of their slander? Perhaps in this life when they see your good deeds and they come to salvation. But I think Peter has a different group in mind. I'm not sure he's speaking of those by your witness are converted to Christ. I believe this shame is in reference to the day these opponents to Christianity will stand before a holy God. I think it's referring to the eternal shame at the final judgment. That seems to be the gist of verse 17. It says, if it's better, it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, I think he's saying it's good suffering and there's bad suffering. Good suffering is that which of God and is for his sake. Good suffering gives opportunity to share our hope. Good suffering is temporary. Bad suffering, bad suffering is the self-induced kind. Bad suffering is what we bring on ourselves because of terrible, stupid choices. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But sad, bad suffering, a bad ending, awaits those who continue in doing evil and don't repent. That's a bad ending for them. Good suffering now is better than a bad ending. It's better to suffer now in this life for doing good, good suffering, than to be those who will suffer for all of eternity, bad suffering, because of evil. So church, we know the end of the story. We, we, must, we must keep the end in view. I know it's not easy to do. The situation of suffering, though, is not a permanent one. It will not last forever. We must keep the end in view with all the craziness that's going around, on right now in our lives. And believe me, I know it's challenging to live on hope when there's just cause for worry and fear and complaining. How do we keep from being overwhelmed by the news? How do we keep from despairing in the times in which we live? It's not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes you feel like you're only hanging by a thread. What do we do? Check out. Many years ago, a Christian social critic, Richard John Newhouse, was picked up at the airport by one of the hosts where he would be staying. And as his host was driving Richard Newhouse from the airport to his speaking engagement, this driver, this host, persisted in complaining about the disintegration of American society, the disappearance of Christian values from our culture. And this man went on and on and on, giving case after case of all that's wrong in our society. I've been there many times. Well, after this tedious drive, Newhouse turned to this driver, to this man, and he said, you know, the times may be bad, but they are the only times we are given. 
The times may be bad, but they're the only times that we are given. And he says, remember, hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a mortal sin. See, moping and complaining about all that's wrong in the world is not going to provide any opportunities to speak of our Savior and the hope that lies within us. It won't give others cause at all to ask, what's distinctive about you? We do not need to wait for major changes to happen in our society before we make a case for hope. The compelling question today is this. Is the unbelieving world asking? Is the unbelieving world asking? Are they asking, what are you hoping in, Brian? Why would the world ask about our hope? Have we been making a case for it? Let's pray. Lord God, you know me, you know us as human nature. It's kind of easy to state the obvious problems. I'm a master of stating the obvious. And there's a lot of junk and stuff going on around us, not only in the big picture, but also in our little worlds. In this room, it's many who are carrying a lot this morning, feeling kind of beat up, suffering, wondering what's the point. And yet, what an encouragement of these words, if we can only get outside of that, deal honestly with it, sure, but get outside of that where we can be people of hope so that people are really asking. May we take that on this week, not in our own strength, not in our own power, not in our own ability, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, that others would indeed ask us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.